0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join me here today on what is for me a Thursday afternoon from my home here on the Pacific Coast of the United States. Wherever it is you're all around the world or all around the country, if you're in the United States, very pleased that you could join me for our Thursday question and answer time. Our pattern on the Thursday question and answer time is to begin with a lead question. That's something that comes in by email or social media or a comment from a YouTube or a leftover question from last time, whatever it might be. Uh, this time, it comes in by email that I received just a few days ago, and it's something that people are talking about, so I thought I'd share a little bit of my perspective as well. Uh, I do want to welcome our TWR 360 audience, the great ministry, Transworld Radio. Uh, this is their online ministry, TWR 360, really doing a wonderful job reaching the world with the gospel in a lot of different languages, a lot of different places. So welcome again to our TWR 360 audience. Today, we want to deal with a lead question, talking about something that has been in the intention to some people over the last uh, week, because it's really just been around for about a week. It's something that people are calling the Asbury Revival. And so our lead question for today is, is the Asbury Revival for real? Asbury University is a small Christian college in Wilmore, Kentucky. Now, it's different from Asbury Seminary, though they're located right next to each other. Uh, It's a school with Methodist roots, Wesleyan roots, you'd even say holiness movement roots, and all of those are sort of historical Christian movements that have come in through the church over the centuries. Uh, Following a morning chapel service on Wednesday, February 8th, there was a call to confession of sin. And at least a hundred lingering students fell to their knees and bowed at the altar up front of the chapel service or chapel building where they had. And some students stuck around afterwards. And by evening, more and more had trickled into the sanctuary, creating what people called something special. And since then, it's turned into what some people call a Holy Spirit outpouring That shows no sign of stopping. Uh, For days, people have been giving testimonies, reading scripture, worshiping God, praying in the ongoing revival. Students, professors, local church leaders have taken part. Uh, One student was quoted as saying this, chains were broken, confession happened, and God was praised as being holy, holy, holy. As of yesterday, the hashtag, uh, hashtag Asbury Revival had two, 24.4 million views on TikTok, and this last Tuesday night capped the largest crowd yet, 3,000 worshipers piled into the college chapel and four overflow facilities throughout the college town. At least two-thirds of the attendance seem to be from out of state. So what you have here, and by the way, uh, I I couldn't tell you what's happening right now. There's a live stream from the Asbury Revival. I suppose you could tune in and take a look at what's happening right there within the main chapel building and maybe some of the overflow facilities. So I I can't speak to what's happening right at this moment, but I think this gives a good opportunity to speak about something that's been of interest to me for a long time. For many years, I've done a lot of reading a lot of thought, some amount of preaching, some amount of consideration of this subject of revival and spiritual awakening. And and so let me begin by just dealing with the question, what is revival? And and just to discuss with you some characteristics of revival and spiritual awakening, although I would say that in the um, scholarly literature and sort of the popular literature that I've read, I, I don't think there's any one certain definition of it. It's a little bit intangible, but here's a few things that I think are common features. I think I've got a list of, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five different things here that I think mark most expressions of what we would call revival or spiritual awakening. Uh, Number one, you have a remarkable sense of the presence of God, and this can be sensed by the converted and the unconverted. Uh, That seems to be taking place at Asbury. They they report a very just powerful sense of the presence of God. And, of course, you you can't calibrate that. You can't measure it. But it's sort of something intangible, but at least that's what's claimed there, both in revival as a whole and at this particular instance in Asbury. Secondly, uh, people describe an unusual interest in the things of God to the neglect of otherwise normal activities and duties. And again, I would just say that this seems to be characteristic of the last seven days or so uh, at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. Uh, It just seems like people are saying, we just want to be there. We don't want to leave. We've got other things, but to the best of our ability, we would put those things on hold because something's happening and we just want to be a part of it. Uh, A third mark I would note would be um, an evident urgency for getting right with God. Uh, Sinners seeking the evangelist more than the evangelist seeking sinners. And I have to say, I don't know to what extent that is characteristic of what's happening in the Asbury revival of 2023. Uh, Certainly there seems to be some of it. R- Reportedly, this revival began with uh, people confessing sin and getting right with God. How much that's continued on through it, I, I-, I really don't know, but th- that's a third mark in the mind of many people of a um, um, work of revival or spiritual awakening. A-, a fourth characteristic could be a great work of conviction of sin and cleansing among God's people. Again, this has been normally characteristic of many revivals, spiritual awakenings in the past, uh, and so that's something to look for in the Asbury Revival. And then uh, finally, I would say a high level of experience and participation from what we would call lay people. In other words, it's something that everyday people get involved with, uh, normal churchgoers, if you will. Now, as for Asbury, when people do what seems to have been happening there in the last seven days, coming together for prayer, worship, seeking God, hearing his word for seven days straight, in some sense, the meeting never ending, I think that shows something's happening. And when people claim an increased sense of God's presence, a sense that the Holy Spirit is being poured out, again, I think that indicates that something is happening. Now, if you go to the pages of the Bible, I think you can find some biblical examples of revival or spiritual awakening. Um, this isn't just something that we find in church history, although really in some sense beginning with the first great awakening at the end of the 18th century, we've sort of had this historical record of revival. I, I think there revival happening in history before that. It's just that it wasn't recorded as, you know, I wouldn't say as reliably, but as in forms that people could just sort of take hold of. I could go through and show you different examples from church history prior to that first great awakening. Uh, But I think in the Bible, we have several examples of revival. In Genesis chapter four, verse 26, it says that men began to call on the name of the Lord, and some people call that the first example of revival. Exodus chapter 33 is a special example of personal revival that impacted a whole nation. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones used Moses' experience of the glory of God as a basis for a powerful series of sermons on revival. 1 Samuel chapter 7 is a great example of revival in the days of Samuel the prophet. One well-known Old Testament example of revival was under the reign of King Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. Uh, What happened in Nineveh under the preaching ministry of Jonah was a remarkable example of revival. The work of John the Baptist recorded in Matthew chapter 3 and other places, I think, is a great example of revival. Uh, The day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that's another example, 3,000 converted at one time, 3,000 plus, again, a remarkable outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I think Acts chapter 19, verses 17 through 20 is another great example of revival. There you see God's people getting right with God and then it affecting the community at large in a remarkable way. So I I think we have many biblical examples of revival. And at least in some way, I think what we see right now happening in Asbury is at least the beginnings or could be a significant work of revival. I mean, time will tell. I have noted some objections that people have, and I think those objections can in some ways be answered. I've heard the objection, they aren't preaching the gospel. But, But friends, I think there's a difference between revival and spiritual awakening, I would define revival as a move of God's spirit among the people of God. They are being revived in their Christian commitment, in their life with God. There's a work of cleansing that happens, a work of increased devotion unto the Lord. You could say you you can never be revived unless you were vived to begin with. Revival happens among the people of God, and yes, there's a preaching of the gospel, but But it's not primarily evangelistic. Spiritual awakening is, I think, when there's an outpouring of the Spirit of God upon a community and many people come to Christ. And there, of course, you would have a much more visible demonstration of preaching the gospel. I've heard the objection to this work in Asbury under the heading, there are strange people joining up with it. Now, friends, that's something to keep an eye on for sure. Uh, there's sort of a character in the Christian world. I would regard him something of a charlatan, Todd Bentley. Uh, He's publicly said on social media, hey, I'm going there. Hey, I'm looking at what's happening here in Asbury. Uh, Friends, if this were to become the Todd Bentley revival, that would be a big concern. Uh, So wait and see. I've seen people object, hey, it's not translating into social action. (laughs) My response would be, good heavens, give it some time. It's seven days. Look, look. Th- this may be a 10-day beautiful outpouring of God's Spirit without going much farther. Well, well, that's something good, but it just is what it is. People have offered the objection that it's not like certain previous revivals. True, not yet. But that's in the nature of revival. It isn't always the same. And again, sort of linked to a previous objection There's not many people coming to salvation. And again, I would point to that distinction between revival and spiritual awakening. Both are responses to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but they have different impacts. Look, there's definitely things I like about what I'm hearing from Asbury. It seems spontaneous and not orchestrated. Praise the Lord for that. It seems sincere and not for show as of yet, it hasn't been taken over, so to speak, by some Christian celebrity. That's a very good thing. It reportedly began with the confession of sin. That's something very good. And there is some note that it's happened there before. Friends, I've spoken with some people who were present at Asbury in 1970 when there was a wonderful outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's, that, that's something characteristic. It Sometimes it happens with revival that where it's happened before, and reportedly both in 1953 and in 1970, there were very similar works, both in February at the same university. Let me give you some things to remember. And I give you these things to remember, it comes from sort of my understanding of revival that's been shaped kind of profoundly by the work in the ministry of a man named J. Edwin Orr. By the way, I would give that to you, a recommended resource on revival and spiritual awakening. Go to the website, jedwinor.com. Now, admittedly, I'll tell you, that's a website that I myself have started because I was so impressed and so touched by the ministry of this man, the late Dr. J. Edwin Orr. He had a remarkable life in ministry. And I would be very pleased if his... Resources. What what I did on jedwinor.com was I just collected as many audio and video resources as I can and made links to them there on that website. I recommend that you listen to his teachings. Matter of fact, on our own uh, Enduring Word YouTube channel, we have two playlists of Dr. Orr's resources. One of them, a wonderful history of revival. Uh, and the other one, A Week of Meetings with Dr. J. Edwin Orr. I-, I put the links to those playlists in the details of this particular video. I strongly recommend, if you're in- if you're interested in the Asbury Revival, you owe it to yourself to go through Dr. J. Edwin Orr's materials. And we, we made it easy with easy links there. But you can also find those materials, again, at uh, jedwinor.com. But again, just sort of in light of that, Let me give you some of the things that I think of when I think of this whole phenomenon of revival and spiritual awakening. Um, Number one, revival isn't always the same. The first great awakening, that great move of God under Whitfield and Wesley, it had prominent preachers. It had vast preaching meetings. But the great revival in 1857-58 in the US and 1859-1860 in the UK They were more known as the prayer meeting revivals. They didn't have preachers as prominent as Whitfield and Wesley were in the 18th century. So revival isn't always the same. Secondly, there have been longer works of revival and shorter works of revival. There's been big works of revival and smaller works of revival. There's been broad works of revival and narrow works of revival. Look, even if this were to be a relatively short Um, small work of revival. It doesn't mean it's not real. It just means that it's relatively short and smaller. And I think praise God for it. Now, friends, there have been some remarkable, uh, multinational, even worldwide works of revival. Uh, For example, one of the most impactful books I've ever read, or series of books by Dr. J. Edwin This book of his, The Second Evangelical Awakening in America, and then this other one, The Second Evangelical Awakening in Britain, which have been abridged, summarized into this uh, single book here. Um, This particular book, uh, The Second Evangelical Awakening here. Uh, This remarkable, remarkable book we've reprinted. You can get this on Amazon. The Second Evangelical Awakening, maybe we'll put a link to it in our uh, description. Um, This is a summation of these two books, an abridgment, and it speaks about that great work of revival that happened in the middle of the 19th century, first in the Canada and the United States, and then secondly in the United Kingdom. But then also, um, J. Edwin Orr's book on the First Great Awakening um, under Whitfield and Wesley, and then secondly, uh, his remarkable work on the Welsh and worldwide revival, The Flaming Tongue, after that. You, you read those books and you really come to an understanding that there's more than just one way to understand um, revival. Uh, there's more than just one way that it's been expressed throughout history. But, but I do just want to say this. I, I think it's very important to say God works, I believe, through the extraordinary. My my study and research through books like these and many others, there have been remarkable times of advance of the kingdom of God. For example, in that great revival in America, 1857-58, started in Canada, spread to America, when America had a population of about 30 million people, about a tenth of what it is now. There were a million people converted and added to the churches in that year. That's remarkable. And that's documented, converted and added to the churches. So there are extraordinary seasons of God's work. But then God also works through the ordinary. And I just think it's important to never despise either one. Some people are so enthralled with the extraordinary works of God that they kind of despise his ordinary works. What happens in a church congregation just through the normal preaching of the word, worship of God, and normal everyday evangelism? God works through the ordinary, but then he also works through the extraordinary. Neither one should be despised. Let me just kind of conclude with some of my... uh concerns about revival in a modern age. Um, I really wonder what the effect of social media will be on revival. Now, it's interesting. In past revivals, media has played a role, especially in the Welsh and worldwide revival of a little more than 100 years ago. Media played a significant role. I don't know if social media will help or hinder the work of revival. I I think it remains to be seen. You see, the pursuit of fame, influence, or money often kills off the work of revival. When people try to take over a work for their own advantage, when you have people coming and flocking to the revival with a false humility, they're just sorta looky-loos, they're observers who are there to make their name prominent in some way, it's never good. And there's always um, the dynamic. Now, I hope you listen to me carefully here. By all indication, this work in Asbury University began in a non programmatic, non orchestrated way. It needs to take care that it continues that way. And there's a danger in saying, look what's happening there. Let's make it happen here. Now, look, th- there's nothing wrong with saying, look what's happening there. I, I wish God would do that among here. I'm going to pray for God to do that among us. But, but the problem is that it didn't happen there by someone saying, let's make it happen. And it's not going to happen anywhere else by someone saying, let's make it happen. So, yes, seek the Lord. Ask him to move we should be allergic to the let's make a revival happen kind of attitude. I would be in strong disagreement with Charles Finney on his point that uh, revival, and I'm paraphrasing here, it's just the application of a particular method. If you fulfill a particular method, God will send revival. I don't think it works like that. There's always an element of the supernatural, an element of the, the sovereign of God in revival. It, it's not just cause and effect. If we do this, then God has to do that. No, I, I wouldn't put it that way at all. So um, those are my thoughts. I think we should receive what God's doing in Asbury with, uh, with optimism and a guarded optimism. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. Let's see what you might continue to do. And let's be aware that man can mess up some things that God is generally doing. It is possible, it's happened many times in church history, where something has begun in the spirit of God. And then at some way along, it continues in the flesh. And of course, that's never, ever good. All right. Well, that's it for my comments on the what people are calling the Asbury Revival Let me go back here now and check in with Andrea, our moderator, and um, go through some of the questions that have come in on the live chat. So, let me just get my screen configured here. Okay, we've got a question from Horatio who asks, why does David in the Psalms think that God's blessings come because of his own righteousness? And he's quoting Psalm 1820. So let me read this to you. Psalm 1820, David says this, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. My righteousness is according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. Horatio, that's a great question. And I think I got a pretty adequate answer for you for it. Um, for a couple reasons. First of all, number one, please remember. That David related to God on the basis of the old covenant, the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. That was the covenant that David related to God under. Now, of course, David as being a descendant of Abraham genetically was part of the Abrahamic covenant. Spiritually speaking, David was a member of the Abrahamic covenant because he believed God. And God credited it to him for righteousness. But David was still very much under the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Sinai covenant. And as a part of that covenant, God said to Israel, I will bless you if you obey me. I'll curse you if you disobey me. Under the terms of the old covenant, David had every right to say, Lord, I've obeyed you. I expect to be blessed. Because God gave Israel that choice. I would say there's three main aspects to the old covenant, Sinai covenant, Mosaic covenant, whatever you want to call it. Number one was the law. Number two was the sacrifice. And number three was the choice. Now, David never thought of himself as being sinlessly perfect, no. But under the terms of the old covenant, he really could come to God and say, you said in your covenant that I would be rewarded if I obeyed you well, Lord, I've obeyed you uh, in faith. I expect to be rewarded. So that's one aspect. Here's the second aspect. Now, all that I've just said before about David under the old covenant, that doesn't really b- apply to the believer today under the new covenant. No, uh, we don't have that same dynamic with our relationship with God under the new covenant. But the second aspect does apply to us under the new covenant, is that there is nevertheless a you could say, a a result from the consequences of sin that's just attendant to the, the world that we live in. The basis for blessing under the new covenant is not the obedience of the believer. Under the old covenant, the basis for blessing was earn and deserve. Earn by your obedience, and in some sense, you'll deserve a blessing from God. Under the new covenant, the... Watchwords are believe and receive. Lord, I've believed your word, and now by faith I receive what you promised to give me in Jesus Christ. Not earn and deserve. Nevertheless, because sin carries its own consequences, there is often uh, bad things that are attendant to sin and good things that are attendant to obedience. So, that's how it relates to a believer under the new covenant. Just in the inherent blessings that come from obedience and the inherent curses that come from disobedience, apart from God's specially bestowing those curses or blessings, God has inherently attached, so to speak, blessing and cursing to our obedience or disobedience. So, really, that's the main way I would express the Horatio. It has to do with the... uh, inherent nature of the covenant that David operated on. We as believers in the new covenant are on the same basis, yet there is still in some sense an attendant blessing or cursing based on our obedience or disobedience, just because God uh, has attached blessing to the ways we obey him. And there's an inherent curse, if you want to say, to our disobedience. Hope that makes some sense to you. Let me go to the next question from Chris, who says... Could you explain where you think the psalmist is referring to in Psalm 139, verse 8? If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God's presence is not in hell, correct? Psalm 139, verse 8 says, again, the Psalm of David, if I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell or Sheol, behold, you are there. Chris, um, I believe that the presence of the Lord is in hell. Let me explain. We believe, because the scriptures teaches this, that God is omniscient. Uh, oh, excuse me, we believe he's omniscient. That's not the word I was searching for. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. There is nowhere in the universe, in all of creation, there is nowhere where God is not present. Now, understanding that, We would simply say that if there's nowhere in the entire created order where God is not present, then he is present in hell, in Sheol. Now, allowing for the fact that when David spoke of Sheol, he's speaking of the grave, he's speaking of something that he had a cloudy understanding of, not necessarily the lake of fire, but anything that we would consider a place where people exist in the afterlife, because God is omnipresent, he's everywhere. Now, we understand that. But I would say this God is present in hell, but God is only experienced in hell in terms of his divine justice, his divine righteousness. In hell, there's no experience of the love, the goodness, the grace, the kindness, the mercy of the Lord. So the Lord is present but only in the sense of his righteous judgment, not in the sense of his love and grace and goodness. But there's no corner of this entire existing universe where God does not inhabit in some way or another. He is omnipresent. Hope that helps you there, Chris. Going on to the next question from SNL, who asks, Uh, Can you please discuss the sacrament of first reconciliation? My son's class is participating tonight, and I've chosen to exclude him. I was hoping for some insight. They quoted John 20, verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. SNL, I got to say, I'm not familiar with this terminology The sacrament of first reconciliation. I I wonder if, you you see, um, in the Roman Catholic Church, there's been something of a rebranding in some corners of different sacraments. So, first reconciliation could be referring to first communion when someone first receives the Roman Catholic sacrament of Holy Communion. First reconciliation could refer, and it kind of leads me from the scripture portion you quoted, to what has been called uh, confirmation. Because uh, in the Roman Catholic system, you know, a a baby's born and is baptized. Uh, They're catechized and they have their first communion. They go to the confession of sin, uh, where they receive that other sacrament of the confession and absolution of sin. And then, at some point along the way, they are confirmed. They have their confirmation. Uh, I I would, especially if you're talking about a Roman Catholic framework, I would uh, agree with your choice to exclude your son from that. Look, apologies to any genuine brothers or sisters in Christ who are part of, within the Roman Catholic Church. I, I know you're there. And, and I love you, uh, apologies to them, but I don't buy into the Roman Catholic s- uh, sacramental system. I-, I don't think it's an accurate way to understand how we receive the grace of God. So SNL, I would just say, I would encourage you, if you don't quite understand it, if you don't quite you know hold on to it, if it doesn't seem right, then... I think you're right for being cautious about it and excluding your son's class. Maybe your son attends a Roman Catholic uh, school. And and understand in some communities, that's a good choice for a child for their education. But again, I I think you're you're being wise with your reticence. It's perfectly okay for you to hold them back from that. Hope that's helpful for you there, SNL. Vijay asks the question, I have uh, some difficulty that Philo and Justice of Tiberius both were contemporary to Jesus, but didn't mention him. Uh, Vijay, um, I'm sorry. In my thinking, I I didn't realize, and I'm not disputing what you say, but I I didn't make the immediate connection that Philo was a contemporary of Jesus. I got to say, I don't know much about justice of Tiberius. And all I can say is that sometimes there's no accounting for why something is mentioned or isn't mentioned. Please remember something, Vijay, that all we possess from ancient history is what survives. We know by mentions of other works in church history There were some extensive written works that are referred to that we don't possess. And so, I would just simply say, um, in the existent writings we have of Philo and Justice, maybe there's no mention of Jesus of Nazareth. But it doesn't mean that they didn't write about them. So, for myself, Vijay, and I'm not trying to put this opinion on you, but for myself, th- these things have just never bothered me in any significant way. And one reason it's never bothered me is because uh, again, because all we have are these it, it is possible that someone like Philo or Justice wrote extensively about just we just don't have those particular writings. So again, um for for my particular take, my particular you know understanding. Such questions have never truly bothered me very much because I I believe it's a fairly small portion of ancient writings that we have any access to in the modern world. Next question comes from Lynn. What do you think if I'm seeking an expository style church and the only ones in my area are Calvinists, but I'm not a Calvinist? Should I even try it? Okay, Lynn, I'll give you my general understanding, my general recommendation to people as far as choosing the church. What you should do is choose the best church you can that would be in a geographical distance that you'll actually go to. So in other words, somebody might say, well, there's a great church 200 miles away from me, that's my church, but it's 200 miles away and you won't go there. Okay, fine. So, leave that one aside. Use the geographical region of what you'll actually make the effort to go to. And within that geographical region, choose the best church you can. Look, there's something true about churches that... uh, nobody likes everything about a church. Nobody. Let me tell you something. The pastor of a church doesn't like everything about his church. He wishes some things would change. He's trying, he's working and hoping to God that some things can change. So nobody likes everything about their church. So I think our responsibility is to choose the best church we can. And maybe the best church we can is Calvinistic, but I'm not Calvinistic. Look, I would still go there. Maybe the best church we can, you know, allows something else or has something else, has a style of worship that doesn't really click for me. Okay, I understand. But again, I would make the commitment to go there just because there's not a better alternative. And I don't say that to make people hop around from church to church, but I do think I would just say Select the best church you can. And, and sometimes that's a difficult decision based on on balance. Well, I like this about this church, this other church. It's not so good. I have to try to make a decision between the two. Prayerfully, God will give you the sense. But I'm glad that of high priority to you is a church where they have expository preaching, where they genuinely teach through the word of God, verse by verse, word by word, um, Chapter by chapter, they they approach the word of God, taking the word of God seriously in that church. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Lynn. Next question, after I take a very brief drink of water. Next question comes from Without the Mask, who asks, Pastor, my name is Jay. Well, let's just call you Jay, and I'm a new pastor. How can I develop a passion for God's work? Don't get me wrong, I love to preach and look after my people, but it feels like more is missing. Well, Jay, um, I would have to know more about your personality to answer this question better. If there's things that you're really passionate about, you really get excited about, but the work of the ministry is not one of those things, to me, that's a red flag. But but maybe you have a personality where you don't get really excited or passionate about a lot of things. Or, or the way you express passion, the way you express excitement isn't necessarily like other people express it. That's really the question I, I would get at. I would say that If other things are a lot more satisfying, if other things are a lot more, I don't know, just engaging, fulfilling to you than the ministry, uh, maybe ministry isn't the right place for you. But don't fall into the trap, Jay, and for some reason I sort of suspect this is the case, that what you're really saying is that you don't seem to be as excited about ministry or aspects of ministry as other people do. Well, again, don't compare yourself to other people. Look look at it as to how you are in your own particular uh, personality. I talk to preachers a lot about this. I think that it's important for preachers to communicate a sense of zeal, a sense of passion, so to speak, in their preaching, but a zeal and a passion that is appropriate for their personality. You shouldn't have to feel like you have to put on a different personality. And... What might be zealous in expression for one person (laughs) might not seem very zealous in expression for another person, but that's okay. Whatever zeal or excitement would look like according to your personality, I think that's what it should look like. So, Jay, I I would bless you in this and just say continue on in ministry, uh, but ask God to help you figure this out. And just to decide, I hope you're not in the ministry just because you think you have to. I hope you're not in the ministry just because you think other people expect you to be, but that you genuinely sense that it's a calling and that even accepting the inevitable bumps and bruises and difficulties that there are in serving the Lord, which there are, make no doubt about it. That nevertheless, you find it something fulfilling and something that you are, at least in some sense, zealous about, according to your own personality. Thank you for that, Jay. Let me go to the next question from Sophia. Sophia asks, Can women be professors at Bible schools, or is that a breaking of the command for women to not teach or have authority over men? Sophia, I'll give you my opinion. You're submitting this question on the live chat of this particular YouTube, you know, channel. Uh, so, I'll give you the answer that I would understand. I, I would be okay with a woman being a professor at a Bible school. I believe that the command uh, given in 1 Timothy and throughout the New Testament is something that's relevant to congregations, and a Bible school isn't technically, of course, isn't at all a congregation in that same sense. So, I would think that um, maybe it wouldn't be particularly common, but that it shouldn't be prohibited. Again, there are people who disagree. I understand that they disagree. I'm fine. I'm not offended by their disagreement. Um, and I don't really, you know, care if they would disagree with me and think that I'm out to lunch with this. But I would just make that distinction between the commands of, of uh, I believe that God has commanded male leadership, uh, the the leadership of qualified men in the church. By no means would we ever say or think that being a man qualifies you for leadership in the church. No. But, but... the the leadership of qualified men in the church and the leadership of husbands in a marriage, I think that those are the God-ordained spheres of of male headship or leadership. I don't think God commands it outside of those spheres. And and though certainly a Bible school, a seminary, whatever, is related to the work of God in church, It's not the same thing as a congregation. So for me, I'm comfortable drawing the line there. Uh, I I haven't read a lot of women Bible commentators, but uh, there's one woman Bible commentator that I really appreciated her work. Uh, That would be the work of Joyce Baldwin, who's got some really good commentaries in the InterVarsity Press um, Old Testament series. First Samuel, Second Samuel, maybe Ruth. I'm not sure what else that she has. And look, I think that she's had helpful commentaries. I, I, I would be okay with taking a Bible college class from Joyce Baldwin. I don't even know if she's still alive. She may have passed on. But um, again, that's the distinction I would make and the reason I would make such a distinction. I, I am pretty firm on the uh, importance of male headship of qualified men in congregations but not necessarily outside of that. Okay, Sophia, I hope that's helpful for you. Next question comes from Junebug, who asks, Hi, Pastor Guzik. I know that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have a role in our salvation. However, is the title Savior in some sense the unique title we give to the second person of the Trinity, who, of course, is Jesus? Well, Junebug, I think that the title Savior is more commonly given to Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. But at least the equivalent of that term is given to Yahweh in the Old Testament. And Yahweh is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, One way that we can explain the Trinity, and I don't know if there's ever a completely adequate human explanation. But one way that the Trinity can be explained is to say it simply like this, that uh, there is one God, the name he revealed himself to his covenant people Israel was Yahweh. There is one God, Yahweh, and in the Old Testament, and the New Testament, when you bring the two of them together, The Father claims to be Yahweh, the Son claims to be Yahweh, and the Holy Spirit claims to be Yahweh. Yahweh is the one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, because Yahweh is called Savior, in some sense, that title applies to each member of the Godhead, each person of the Godhead. And um, so, I wouldn't have a problem with calling the Father or the Holy Spirit Savior. And I'd I'd be interested, I'd want to do kind of my own digging to see if those titles are ever applied to the Father or to the Holy Spirit. But I have no problem recognizing that it's primarily a title given to Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity in the scriptures. Thank you, Junebug. Hope that's helpful for you. Next question comes from Doug. Um... While Jesus and the disciples were sharing the Last Supper, who were the other people outside in attendance aware of such who was inside? Well, Doug, t- to my knowledge, and I'm just doing a quick concordance of my own Bible knowledge here, which isn't perfect, but to my knowledge, I, I don't know that the Bible really tells us much about anybody, you know, kind of looking from the outside in. Um, there was a person that they hired the room from, A person who probably catered and made the arrangements for it. The the Bible mentions something about the meeting with that particular person who had the room and probably catered the dinner. Uh, So, you have that. Um, Beyond that, I'm really not aware of spectators, so to speak, at the Last Supper. And of course, every painting I've ever seen of the Last Supper doesn't include uh, spectators. Look, Doug, that was a little bit of a joke. We're joking that paintings and depictions of that, that's all right, forget about that one. But, Doug, scripturally speaking, I'm just simply not aware of really any significant mention other than the person who provided the room. And it's commonly presumed that, you know, they probably provided the food as well. I don't want to make it sound crass, but, you know, something of a package deal. Hey, Your group can celebrate Passover. I'll supply the room and the food and all the arrangements. All you guys have to do is show up. And that would have been a very uh, comfortable sort of arrangement for Jesus and his disciples. But we're really not told anything, not to my remembrance, about spectators, so to speak, or people on the outside listening in or something to the Last Supper. It was Jesus and his 12 disciples and Judas left the room at some point during the occasion. Right, let me go on here to Texas, who asks, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and later in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, our being saved is used. Can you explain that wording? Does this contradict instantaneous justification by faith at the moment of conversion? And then uh, our moderator, Andrea, was helpful enough to give us the um, uh, wording here. 1 Corinthians chapter 118, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the powers of God. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 15, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Well, Texas Reliable, what you're really doing here is you're putting your finger on something that I kind of enjoy talking about, and that is that our salvation is presented in all three time aspects. The Bible speaks about us having been saved. That's what you're talking about. You know, hey, it's accomplished. It's done. We are saved. It's in the past tense. The Bible talks about our salvation being in process, so to speak, just in the scriptures you mentioned, to those who are being saved. And then finally, the Bible also talks about, in a few places in the New Testament, this idea that we will be saved, that there's some sense in which our salvation is not yet complete. And I think that it's very meaningful that the scriptures speak of our salvation in all three tenses. Yes, there is a sense in which we have been saved, it's an accomplished fact, and uh, we we need to uh, receive it and rest in that. There is a sense in which God's work of salvation in us is ongoing. Uh, It's in process, it's being worked out right now, and there's also a third sense in which our salvation is not yet complete, but it will be completed if you wanted to assign terminology to these three aspects of our salvation, there's justification, which you rightly mentioned. That's past tense. That's been accomplished in Jesus Christ. The believer is, has been justified uh, by the righteousness of Christ. Justification, that's the past. Sanctification, that's the ongoing and the present. That's the being saved. And then the third is glorification. That yet remains for the believer. And there is a genuine sense in which our salvation will not be complete until that final glorification. I I don't mean that it's not certain. I don't mean that it's not real. I just mean that it's not finished until we are in heaven and glorified. So all three aspects are valid. We shouldn't pretend that any one of those aspects cancels out the other. So, I have been saved, but that doesn't cancel out the fact that I am still being saved and will be saved. Uh, I will be saved, but that doesn't cancel out the fact that I have been saved. All three of them just sort of work together in God's great plan, in God's great way. Hope that answer is helpful for you there. And I'll go into the next question. Um, Joan asks... Does the Bible say anything about forbidding abuse of children or women? Well, Joan, um, not, I think, in the terminology that we have in our present day, but certainly in principle it does. The command to love, the command to not provoke your children, Uh, The command to, uh, the same command that tells me that I should not be violent or a striker towards uh, my neighbor, that child is my neighbor. My wife, my spouse is my neighbor. The very same commands that would prevent me from being violent and abusive towards my neighbor are the very same commands that tell me not to be violent or abusive towards my child or towards my spouse or towards anybody else. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes the best marriage seminar that Christians can have is just to read how we should treat one another in the body of Christ and apply that in our home. Look, it's very sad. I would say even tragic testimony that in some Christian homes, the people are treated worse than they would treat other people in the church. What a sad testimony that is. So anyway, Joan, I would say that in a very general sense, it happens in that way. But then also in a a very real sense as well, uh, we're given commands, the husband is commanded to cherish his wife, to love her, to care for her, and to do opposite would be a breaking of that command. The father's commanded to love his children and to not provoke them, to do opposite would be to break those commands. So maybe in some of the ways that we uh, identify or, or call or, or give terminology to abuse today, maybe those specific commands are not in the scriptures, but certainly in principle, it is certainly there. That's why it would need to be said, anybody who's abusing their children, who's abusing their spouse, you need to stop. And if you claim to be a Christian in the name of Jesus, you need to stop. You're sinning. You're sinning terribly. And you need to repent and make that right first with God and then with your family. That's what the word of the Lord would say to us. Folks, We've had a lot of questions today. Uh, Sorry, we can't get to them all. We make our question and answer time about an hour long and so we're gonna cut it off here for today. Thank you so much for joining us. We're very pleased that you could be with us today. And uh, I wanna ask that you come back next week. Let's do it again and enjoy our time together. Yes, uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Yes, click notifications. Yes, go over to EnduringWord.com for free Bible resources. I've got a commentary on the entire Bible that at least some people find helpful. It's absolutely free of charge. We don't even have paid ads on our website because we want the user experience to be as pleasant as possible. And I do want to make one other notice here at the very end of our breakfast. We have an outstanding app at EnduringWord.com, where you can access the Bible commentary from your phone. Of course, we have it both for the iPhone and for Android devices. On our YouTube channel, we have just put out an outstanding video that tells you how to use the app, how to get the most out of it. Check that video out. It's on our YouTube channel. You will love that. We'll put a link to it in the details. It's already there, as a matter of fact. Look for that video on our YouTube channel on how to use the Enduring Word app. It's absolutely free. Uh, We are just excited about the opportunity God gives us to get free Bible resources into the hands of as many people in as many languages as possible, and we're grateful if you could remember to pray for this work. So, uh, God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for Andrea for being our moderator today, and I hope you can join us in the future. God bless you and thank you for joining us today. Bye bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit enduringword.com.